Well, good morning. Looking at me, you might not know this, but as a young man, you might be surprised to know that I was an avid backpacker. Uh, just would love to fill up my old rickety external frame pack and go off for a week in the wilderness. Had lots of great opportunities as a youth worker to bring inner city uh, students into the wilderness in the Oregon and Washington area. Just lots of amazing trips in my life personally, take a week and be out in the wilderness. Some of the most significant spiritual things in my life happened backpacking in those years of my life. But how many of you know as time go along, you know you get married and uh, you get your career started and you know kids come along and you get a minivan and you know some of these things kind of fade in your life. Uh, I had to laugh a couple weeks ago. We were up in the North End looking around for some sandals for Dina and we wandered into a store called Valhalla Pure. Any of you know what this store is? This is, like, this is like the candy store for backpackers. And I hadn't been in a backpack store for like 40 years. There is some seriously cool stuff. I mean, man, internal frame packs that are light and lightweight stoves and high-tech boots. And I was just running around looking at this whole thing, you know. And the clothing is like fashion clothing that says, I'm a backpacker. It's just so cool, you know. So in my brain, I'm sitting there kind of drifting off and, and imagining kidding myself out with all this new gear, and, and I can see all the pockets full of the latest high-tech gear and all the, I, I, I see myself standing on some mountaintop looking up, you know, and, and then I'm like, who are you kidding, pal? Are you really going to pack 60-pound pack up a mountain and lay on the ground and sleep at night? <laughs> Probably not. But it was a good photo op in my mind for a moment, okay? Because if I were to do that, I would be probably the ultimate poser, uh, you know, for the backpack community. <laughs> I was laughing and thinking about that in the last couple of years as I was preparing for this morning's preach. And I think there's a kind of a spiritual parallel that the Lord's been showing me. Um, oftentimes, we only look on the outside of a person. But the amazing thing is God looks at the heart. And... Uh, that's what I want to talk about this morning in a, in a pretty intense scripture in Acts 5. But before we turn there, let's just pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you that you are the good physician, Lord, and that you can be trusted to do diagnostics on our health, our spiritual health, Lord. So, Lord, we just welcome you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to do any diagnostic work that needs to be done in our life this morning. God, we know that you're a God of grace and you're a good God and anything that you reveal is for your purposes to heal. So Lord, we ask for that experience together with you this morning. Amen. I'd encourage you to act, turn to Acts 5, verse 1. You got a Bible or an iBible or something? <laughs> Just start reading in verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain in your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. 
and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him away and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to it, how is it you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Then the young men came and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Nothing like a nice, warm and fuzzy scripture to preach on this morning. <laughs> if you've never heard this, uh, this event before, it's a little bit shocking. Um, it seems like God is really a harsh God. I mean, these people, you know, do this thing, which doesn't seem like such a huge deal, and yet it costs them their lives. I'm learning when I'm reading the Word of God, when there's ever a t a something in the Scriptures that I come across that rubs me the wrong way, I kind of have two responses I can do. One is, oh, what a joke. This is so crazy. I knew God was like that. He's, oh, no, I'm throwing this out. No, this is ridiculous. This is not, I'm not. That's one response. The other response is, Lord, I don't understand this. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't seem consistent with who I think you are. Lord, will you show me more about who you are and reveal to me what's going on here? I think that second response is where we need to be in this scripture um, in terms of this kind of shocking event. This was a real event that took place in the lives with real people, probably in the early week or maybe a couple of months, maybe of the early church after Jesus went back into heaven when God was just blowing the doors off Jerusalem and Christianity was exploding. But to really understand this, I think we need to go back and look a little bit at the context of what was going on before. That's really important in Scripture when there's strictly something we're stuck on and we don't understand it. Take a look around on either side. Uh, this Scripture uh, is a, a Scripture that just comes right after the end of Acts 4. And I just want to read what was going on in the life of the church because it's amazing what God was doing. This is starting in verse 32 of the previous chapter, Acts 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving a testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands and houses, sold them and brought the proceeds for what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed each to any as they had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this is the context of this radical movement that God was doing in the early church in those early weeks and months in the early church. People were just selling stuff and just saying, hey, you know, to the apostles, just use it however you want. And, and, and everyone was being cared for. It was this amazing time of true koinonia, of sharing everything together in the early church. And so I think Ananias and Sapphira, who were probably part of the early church, saw this gift, and we don't know much about what took place here. Barnabas actually ends up being a real key leader later on in the life of the church. Whether the church kind of recognized that, I doubt they made a big deal about it, but something must have triggered him like, wow, I'd like to look in, in, in the church's eyes like people see Barnabas. I want to be like Barnabas, okay? 
So this situation takes place with Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, and they try to duplicate, they want the results, but they don't go through the process that Barnabas went through to release that entire amount of money. There was a dishonesty there. And I think the question that we really got to wrestle with is, why was this such a big issue with God? I mean, I look at this and kind of go, well, that was dumb. But I'm not sure it was dumb enough to die for. But apparently God thought about it differently. So why was this such a big deal to God that he took these two early Christians' lives? Well, Peter gives us a few clues. In verse 3, he says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So first off, supernaturally, as an apostle and as a leader in the church, Peter realized Satan was behind this. There's something going on here more than just a bad decision. There was something uh, evil that was taking place in this situation, and Satan was behind that. He says, what, you've not lied to men, but you've lied to the Holy Spirit. This is a really big deal. It's one thing to lie to each other, but when we start thinking we're lying to the Holy Spirit, that's a very serious thing with God, because the Holy Spirit is God. He's a member of the, of the Trinity, and we'll see in a second how he just interchangeably uses God and the Holy Spirit here. He says, you've, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And he says, you've not lied to man in verse 4, but you've lied to God. You thought you were just putting a little white lie out there to the church, thinking that you were going to look good. But actually, what you're doing is you're lying to God. And that's a serious deal with God. Verse 9, talking to his wife, he says, how is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? So you start to see the, the significance of what these two are doing. It's almost like they were saying, you know what? I don't think God is going to mind. I don't think he's going to notice, or if he does, I don't think he has the, the, the juice to make a big deal about it. Whatever they were doing, they were minimizing God in the situation. They put God to the test, like, let's see if we can pull this off. I bet we could get away with it. Now, how many of you know that doesn't work too well playing those kind of games with God? <clears throat> There's been times in my life I've probably done that. <clears throat> this word test actually would have twigged something to them uh, because in the Greek New Testament, uh, the translation in the Old Testament, they would think right back to Achan. Do you remember him in the beginnings of the book of Joshua? Joshua chapter 7, he kept some of the things that were supposed to be given to the Lord. He hid them under his tent. It caused a great, great defeat in the nation of Israel in the early days of coming into the promised land. This testing, it's the same word. He tested God and said, you know what, I bet I could keep some of this stuff and God wouldn't notice. But God did notice and it was a, it was a very serious deal. So Peter's showing these things, uh, pointing these things out to Ananias and Sapphira about how serious this issue was. So what did they try to do here? I think, what was Ananias and Sapphira, what were they thinking? What were they thinking? I hear that regularly from people I love. What were you thinking? <laughs> well, a couple things. I think they tried to pull a fast one on the church. I think they just wanted to look good in the eyes of the church. And who doesn't like to feel like they're spiritual and they're a leader and important and valuable and, you know, I mean, be honest. Sometimes we kind of think, I do, maybe I'm just weird. But you try to pull a fast one in the church. I think they wanted to look good to their fellow church members. They wanted to be seen as, as people who were generous and pious and upright and giving and, you know, like Barnabas. We want to be that kind of person. I think they wanted the glory that came from this gift, but they didn't want the sacrifice of what it was going to cost. Um, remember, it was okay to keep back some of the money. That wasn't the issue. It's not like you had to give it all. Peter says, look, you could have kept some of that money, but why did you pretend that you didn't? That was the issue, was the deception that was going on in there. Um, 
They wanted the glory, but they didn't want the sacrifice. And I think the most important thing, which I mentioned already, is they figured God would not notice or care. You know, we can get, we can get by with this. And wow, were they wrong. No? So again, why so serious? I just keep struggling. I've been wrestling and wrestling with that for a couple of weeks here. God, why was it such a big deal that you put two people to death in the early church over this issue? Well, I think there's a bigger picture going on here and it has to do with what Satan's strategies were in the early days of the church to destroy and extinguish the church. You think about the early book, the early days of the church, and right away when Jesus goes back to heaven, what's the first thing that happens? Persecution breaks out against the leaders and they're trying to beat them and scare them and, and, and kowtow them into submission. Don't talk about this Jesus anymore. We don't want to hear about this guy. <coughs> Excuse me. We don't want to know what he's, we don't want, quit talking about him. And it was just a physical, violent kind of uh, opposition. Now, Satan does that regularly. There's lots of times in church history and in world history now where people will come against Christians in violent ways. It's an external kind of a um, trying to shut down the message of Christ. But that didn't work because the church just kept on growing and, you know, craziness. Even more power was revealed in the midst of that persecution. So I think you start to see a subtle shift in what Satan was doing. It's like, if I can't get him from the outside, maybe I can get him from the inside. And I think Satan said, lied. Satan was the author of this thing that made them think this up. I think it's like, okay, if, this, if I can't get him on the outside, let me try to work in the inside and bring compromise into the church and dilute what God is doing in this situation. So this is a very serious thing. And I think what God was doing was he was protecting the infant church from compromising and becoming watered down spiritually. Remember, these are probably the early months of the church. And we know all through Scripture that purity always brings power. When we walk in purity before God, God releases his power in that kind of a vessel, in a pure vessel. So I really think God was protecting his church from, from this slide. When you think about what took place after this shocking scripture, it's amazing how the church continues to grow in maturity and power and numbers like right after this. In the paragraph after, it talks about signs and wonders were done. Uh, they were all together. People were added to the Lord, both men and women. They carried sick on the mats and, and even the shadow of Peter would fall on them and they'd be healed. It says all those who were brought were sick and afflicted and unclean spirits, all were healed. So, so the church really powered out of this situation, out of this discipline that God brought in the church and this severe discipline that he brought on these particular two people in the church. But you see, I think, the seriousness of what was taking place in the infancy of the early church in that situation. This was a teeter-totter moment for the church, I think. It was a serious threat, and it required a serious action from God. I think it was a wake-up call for the church I love these little understatements in the Bible. And great fear fell upon the whole church. <laughs> yeah, I think so. You think anybody else is going to try that little trick? <laughs> I don't even know if I want to come to church. It's so serious, right? So there was a, a fear, but I think it was a holy and a divine reverence. Like, wow, we are not messing around here. This is serious business. This God, this is a God who sees and knows. Even though we missed this thing and we thought these people were all so great, God looked at the heart and he called it out and he dealt with it in a very severe way. So, so there was a soberness, I think, that came to the early church. And then we see that reigniting from there on uh, in even greater ways in the church's life. So it was a, it was a, a significant 
danger, a significant discipline, and yet God protected the church from that. So what's in this for us as 21st centuries Christians? Fast forward, you know, 21 centuries. Well, I think in this is a sober warning for us. And I think it is something that goes along this line, that we have to beware of the subtle shift from an authentic faith to synthetic Christianity. We have to beware of the subtle shift from an authentic faith to a synthetic Christianity. What do I mean by synthetic? I looked up a good definition. Synthetic is a substance made by chemical synthesis, especially to imitate a natural product. It's made to look like something that was real, but it's not. Anybody of us who lived in the 60s and 70s, you know, we probably have some embarrassing photos of synthetic fabrics that we were wearing at certain points. You know, polyester was king and then spandex. Ooh, I don't even want to think about that, you know. We have some photos of that, so we know what, what this synthetic is. But when we talk about this in terms of our faith, it's very easy to slide from an authentic faith into some kind of synthetic faith. Synthetic faith emphasizes perception over practice. What it looks like is more important than what I actually did. What you think I did is more important than what I actually did. That's a, that's a symptom of a synthetic faith. Synthetic faith emphasizes image over action. So it's what I look like, it's the, it's the photo that I post, that's what matters, not what I actually did or didn't do. Synthetic faith emphasizes what is seen over what is unseen. So it's all an emphasis on the visual and what we see in the outside and a playing down of what really was taking place in my heart in that situation. That's synthetic faith. And I think that was the danger the church was going through and for certainly what Ananias and Sapphira had fallen into. Somebody smart said, integrity is who you are when no one's looking. And that's a very significant thing in my life. Since a young man, I've thought about that. Who, who am I really when no one's looking? I can, I can manage what I look like when you see me, when I'm standing up front here, but what's it like tomorrow morning at work or with my family? That's when no one's looking. That's integrity. You think of King David, when they were choosing King David, all the brothers, remember the story? The big tall guys, big strapping but young bucks, you know, beautiful long hair. That's not the one. What? That would be a great king. On down the line to little ruddy, red-faced, pock-marked David, smelling like stinky sheep gets drug in, you know, with manure on his sandals. And, and Samuel says, that's the one. What? Because God looks at the heart, not at the outside. Samuel says that about David. I think this shift is so deadly because it really does show up in two fronts, I think, in our life. This shift from authentic to synthetic. The first, and I, I just, I don't know how else to call it, but maybe this is not very reverent, but I just call it poser Christianity, you know? Uh, Christianity that looks good, uh, but doesn't have much substance. Poser Christianity sucks the conviction out of our own life making us fearful and timid, it makes us ineffective because inside, down deep, we know we're a fraud. Do you know what I'm talking about? Has there been times when God has called you into something, he's asked you to do something and step out for him to, to, to pray to heal somebody or to speak about Jesus at work or something in the church where you have an opportunity to go be a connect group leader or something that you know, is given to do to step out. 
And as you think about doing that, there's this little nattering voice from the enemy that says, you couldn't do that. I know what you did last week. If they knew what I know about you, you've disqualified yourself because of that. And it leads to us, it makes us timid, it makes us ineffective, it makes us scared because that thing, that hidden thing in our life hasn't been dealt with. So poser Christianity really sucks the life and the conviction and the power out of our Christian life. There are times in my life when I'm really careful and I'm listening to the Lord and I'm dealing with sin in my life and I'm making, keeping short accounts with God. Uh, I really am very intentional about that when I preach on Sunday morning, particularly in the previous week, saying, God, I need to come up there without anything that I can think of that's undealt with you because I want to be as bold as a lion in this situation. Not because of my own righteousness, but because I've done everything I can to know that I have nothing to hide, that I can walk with you in power, Lord. Reveal yourself in the scriptures, Holy Spirit. Don't let me get in the way. And Jesus experienced that in his whole life, of course. It says that Satan had no hold on him. There was nothing that Satan could natter in Jesus' ear because he lived a, a completely sinless life. And you see the power, of course, in Jesus' life because of that. So poser Christianity sucks the conviction out of our life. The other thing I think is so deadly about poser Christianity is it keeps other people who are genuinely seeking God away from authentic faith because they see your seemingly perfect life and give up because they know they could never be that together. This is the problem with poser Christianity, and sometimes it even infects whole churches. We all just want to look good. We all want to be so together and seem so right. Uh, and somebody comes in whose life is wrecked in sin and goes, my goodness, these people, I'm in the wrong place. You know, uh, these people are so together. I could never belong here. There's no place here for me in this country club. But I promise you, no one feels like that in the ER room in emergency. When they go in and get dropped off and go into ER, there's no sense of, do I belong here? No, it's filled with hurting and bleeding and crying and, you know, it's like, I'm in the right place because I know I'm broken and these people around me are broken. That's really the reality of what the church should be. And poser Christianity works against that in such an evil and seductive way that we have this facade that we put up together and it keeps people away from the reality of Jesus. Why would we do that? Why not be real and be honest? Yeah, there are things in my life that are areas of victory, but there's things that are not areas of victory and, and people anywhere on the journey can relate to that. So that's, I think, why it's so deadly in our life. So what do we do when we find ourselves slipping from an authentic faith into poser Christianity? Well, the scripture is really so clear. It just says it starts with just be real with God. Just admit to God what's going on. That's the first step. That's called confession in the word of God. It's saying, God, I'm pretending like I'm one thing, but I know that I'm really not in 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 reality when no one's looking. God, would you forgive me? And you, would you cleanse me? And would you give me the power to quit living a two-faced life? Man, God loves this prayer. He, he, he's all over a prayer like that. He rushes in to deal with you and heal you and bring power in your life in a situation like that. When you're being honest, it's almost like when I do that with God, he's like, my son, I've been waiting for you to be honest. Now we can get to work on that area. Now that you're not trying to hide it, right? Uh, that's what's so powerful about Freedom Session. I just love what's taking place here in our church and just coming up again. It's a place that where we're honest and say, God, this doesn't line up. I need to be honest and real about it. I need your help. It's a place where you get help in that. So we need to be honest with God. Confess it. The scripture says if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you find yourself in that poser Christianity mode, even this morning, if the Holy Spirit's putting something on your heart, an area where it's like, hey, mm, I'd rather not anyone know about that. It might just be the Lord saying, you know what, why don't you be real with me in that? And let's work that through. And let me come in and bring healing and bring wholeness and freedom from that. <coughs> so that you don't have to live this two-edged life. And you don't have to have that thing in your past that holds you back or that event that's holding you back. And you can run where I'm leading you and where the Holy Spirit's leading you in your life. I want to give just a minute of just quiet to do that very thing right now. If you could, maybe just focus out from those around you just for a second. And let's just ask the Lord to touch us in this area. Lord, we welcome you right now in, into your examining room of our hearts. Holy Spirit, if there's anywhere we've been posing, would you just put your finger on that right now? Just as we're praying, I'm thinking about there might be someone here this morning who doesn't even have a personal relationship with Jesus. You're trying to live this Christian life. You're trying to get your stuff together like you see the people around you, but you don't even have Jesus in your life. The great news is you can start into a relationship with Jesus right now. Is there anybody in the room that understands what I'm saying? You don't yet know Jesus as your Savior. You're not sure if you've even started the journey with Jesus. Is there anybody? I want to pray with you right now if there is. Anybody who's not sure about where they stand with Jesus this morning, are you saved or not? Awesome. So Lord, we thank you that you put your finger on the very thing that needs to be healed. Just pray that right now. Lord, I uh, open this area to you. I open up this area. Would you come in and bring healing and freedom and victory in this area? I don't want to live two-faced anymore, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for what you're doing right now in the room. You're such a gracious and such a good God. You never point these things out to shame us or to make us afraid, but to bring us into life, Lord. And so I thank you for those transactions that are taking place right now, Lord. We want to be a people of purity, Lord, because we know that comes with power. So purify us, Lord. Thank you. Just one more piece I want to talk about before we go this morning is that I think this warning, although we focused this morning so, so far on Ananias and Sapphira, I think it applies to us not only as individuals, but as a group. I think this warning affects us as a church, as Oceanside Church, because this subtle shift from an authentic faith to a synthetic Christianity can also be deadly for a church as a whole. When we were first married, I served in the youth ministry of a really large downtown denominational church in Portland, Oregon. Um, it was one of those churches with a big, huge, round sanctuary and the glass on the top, and choir every week, 50, 60 voices. We had buses in the parking lot. We would go out and get all the kids in the neighborhood. Huge youth ministries. Uh, it was called the flagship of its denomination in a five-state area. Everybody looked at that church and said, that is the paragon of what churchness is. That church was just going through its 100th anniversary when I was serving on staff there. 
So we had this big, you think we're having a celebration at 25. I can't wait for the 100. The problem with this church was, because I saw how the sausage was being made, I knew that there wasn't a reality of that. There was a perception that this was the place to be in this church of power, but it was all looking back into the 1950s. And into the, do you remember when? Do you remember when? It was all about, do you remember when? And the neighborhood started to change and the church lost touch with what God was doing in the area. And the church just became an empty shell after that 100th anniversary. So this can take place for us even as a church if we're not careful. This, this shift away from the authentic. And I'm so excited that we're celebrating the 25th anniversary in a couple weeks. There's so much to celebrate with Oceanside. I mean, Dean and I have been here maybe 16 or 17 years. We came to this place broken and hurting. And God just used it as a healing place for us and restored us. We were ready to give up on church. And it takes a lot for a pastor to want to give up on a church, you know? We came in broken, and, and I remember just sitting on Mike and Deb's deck, bawling our eyes out like, it's over. And Mike and Deb say, no, it's not. Just come. We love you. Hang out. You know, be part of the church. And we've seen that over and over again in people's lives in the last years in this place. God's restored people's hope, restored the reality of what a living and active church can be. We've seen marriages restored. We've seen lives restored. You know, we've seen people freed from the demonic in this place. We've seen amazing prophetic words released. There's been so many times I can think in the life of the church that since we've been here where specific words were given and people were just on the floor with, 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 the, with the goodness and the amazing power of God because of the prophetic release. Dean and I were laughing. We remember there was a lady we had to carry out to the parking lot one night after a meeting because she couldn't stand up. She'd been there laying on the floor for an hour. She's just, she was gone. We had to take her out to her car and put her in the car. She built her in the driver home. You know, those kind of things are just very much norm of what God has been doing in this church. And it's been such an exciting place for us to be involved. And when we come into the 25th, we want to celebrate that. Man, we want to go, thank you, God. Look at the amazing things you've done among us. Look at the power you've released. I mean, there's been times when I've been in, in meetings in this church, and I just, you know, I call it the snotty download. You know, the presence of God is there, and you're bawling, and the snot's coming out, and you can hardly breathe because God's hand is so heavy in your life. That's been a regular experience for us as a church, and I'm so excited about that in our past. And we're going to celebrate that in spades coming in a couple weeks. But be careful not to just look back, not to always think about the past. Because you know what? As good as these last 25 years have begun, they're only a beginning. They're baby steps, I believe, compared to where God wants to bring our church in power and in the release of the prophetic and the apostolic and then healings and signs and wonders and miracles. Those are just the beginnings. So let's have a great celebration. Let's thank, thank God and let's look back and say, thank you, Jesus. And Monday morning, let's get up and say, God, now what? Now what do you have next? What's next for this church in the 25 years? Because we want to live in the authentic, not in the synthetic. There's a momentum in the life of a church that tends to lead us into just, just doing the same thing and looking the same way. We don't want to be that way. It drives Mike crazy. I love being on his team because he regularly says, we're not going to become that church. He's militant. He fights for becoming a church that's real and powerful in the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what God wants. And that's what he's doing. But we have a place to play in that. Individually, how we choose to live in this issue and together in how we cooperate and, and submit to what the Holy Spirit is doing among us. The days are coming and they are even more and more and more powerful, I believe, for this church. But we have to guard that and we have to watch for that. 
because it doesn't happen automatically. Matter of fact, Satan actively works against that. And I don't believe that's going to happen for our church. I believe there's more and more powerful things, but we have to be ready and we have to be together and working together individually to see those things. Mike's just vibrating good. <laughs> I love it, Mike. I like to hear that. It's the truth of what God does. Authentic Christianity cannot be duplicated. Authentic Christianity individually and together just can't be duplicated. And when you see the real thing, it's so powerful. It changes lives. It changes communities. It changes countries. Authentic Christianity is like a train that cannot be stopped. And that's what we're so hungry for. So I invite you to stand. Let's just commit to that right now. Stand with me. Lord, I thank you for authentic Christianity. I thank you that you are about the real in our own lives that you want to break through the barriers of, of poser Christianity in us, Lord. Right now, even you're releasing that kind of releasing among us and that kind of freedom among us. And Lord, I'm praying for this church that the first 25 years are only the beginning. <laughs> Lord, that you're going to release greater and greater measures of things, things that we look back and said, man, that was powerful, but that was nothing compared to what we're walking in right now. So, Lord, we thank you for that kind of power. Lord, thank you that you are the God of power. And, Lord, thank you that we don't have to develop the purity on our own. Lord, you give us the purity. You give us the ability to walk a life that pleases you, Lord. We, don't, we can quit pretending, Jesus, because it's your heart and your power that gives us that freedom to do that. Thank you, God. Make us a transformed people. Make us transformed families, a transformed church. Thank you, Jesus.